Really, thank you, brother. As Durley mentioned in his prayer, our, we are very, I am very excited. We are very blessed this morning to have uh, an old friend, Pastor Doug Falls, come and give us the message, the word, this morning from Psalm 132. I've known Doug since 2011 when I came to Stonebridge Church up on the north side of Charlotte, and it was at one of our interview times where um, we were, I was interviewing and meeting with the, the elders and the staff, and he was an associate pastor at the church there, and uh, it was mentioned, well, Doug is a C.S. Lewis aficionado, and he knows everything about C.S. Lewis there is to be known, and uh, I was like, oh, well, I, like, I like Lewis, and so Doug asked me, I don't know if you remember this, but Doug asked me the question, he said, okay, what's your favorite C.S. Lewis work, expecting me to say Mere Christianity or uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and I was like, I really like Till We Have Faces, and his eyes light up, he goes, really? And it was like, he like engaged, and he's like, oh, let's have a conversation about this. So we got, to, for many years, we served at Stonebridge together, got to talk about C.S. Lewis, also got to talk about NASCAR and baseball, um, and Doug was my one guy to be able to talk about both those things with, and I am so excited he is here bringing the message to us. So Doug, thank you, brother. Yeah, Thanks thank for being you. Here. Thank you. It's great to be here with y'all. Uh, uh, I have more connections here than I realized. Uh, you know Matt and the Harris family, of course, and great to see all of them again. Uh, Becky and Eric, there they are sitting there, and they used to go to the church I was at up in uh, Stonebridge and University City area. Uh, but then I just found out this week that the Hazel Groves are here. So, uh, man, that's a incredible, incredible. Dane, who was uh, leading the music up here and everything, there they are. Uh, we played in a band together, we think, maybe 120 years ago or something. So, <laughs> so about that, right? Oh, me. So, anyway, longer than we'd like to admit, let's put it that way. So. Anyhow, yes, uh, thank you for the privilege of uh, being here with you this morning. We are going to be looking at Psalm 132, and I will say uh, that, um, you know, he only had to preach on three verses last week, and he took the whole time, and I've got 18, so we're going to be here about six hours is what we figured. <laughs> so, uh, no, 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 I'm not going to try to do that. Um, uh, but before we dig into that, you know, we use our cell phones for an awful lot, don't we? Uh, uh, many people have come to say that uh, they dominate our lives in, in, in ways and have a variety of negative effects that uh, we probably shouldn't be using them or something. Now, now I'm not going to debate that today or make that point or anything, but the number of applications that we have on our phones truly is amazing to me. Uh, who needs a calculator now that our phones have an app for that, right? Or uh, why spend money on a compass since there's an app for that even? And things like paper maps, fax machines, cameras, they're almost extinct because of the apps that we have on our cell phones. And of course, they're coming out with new apps all the time. And um, I just sort of had an idea. I thought, wouldn't it be something if there was an app on your cell phone that when you opened it would show you your deepest desire? Now, that would be an app. <laughs> It'd probably be a little scary to open that app, actually. But, uh, but I've had some fun thinking about what uh, certain people might see if they had such an app like that. For instance, I bet if Elon Musk opened up such an app, he would finally see a successful launch of the SpaceX Starship. Uh, our current president and a certain former president would both see themselves getting reelected in 2024. And you know what Matt Harris would see, don't you? Don't you? The Atlanta Braves winning another World Series, right? Yes. Of course. But in all seriousness, um, what would you see this morning if you had such an app as that? What is your heart's desire this morning? Well, this morning we consider uh, a psalm uh, as we continue the summer sermon series on the songs of ascent. I actually said that uh, with Psalm 132, and it's all about desire. It's about the Christian's desire for God 
And believe it or not, God's desire for the Christian, his desire for his people for you, if you're one of his children. So as I said, though, it is a long psalm. So uh, let's, let's jump in. Let me read it to you. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on the throne." For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we see in your word, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word lasts forever. And you promise that it never returns to you void, but accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So we pray, Father, for this particular part of your word, this song of ascent, that you would work in our hearts what each of us need, whether it be conviction, encouragement, or whatever. Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, who is in our hearts and who also inspired this, would do your work of teaching, sanctification, and changing us, that we might glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to basically look at uh, four different things. Uh, I've mentioned a little bit already what we're going to be seeing. First, David's desire, and his desire was for a dwelling place for God. Secondly, God's desire to dwell with his people. Thirdly, God's promise to David that his descendants would reign on the throne forever. And that promise basically makes both of those two desires, David's and God's, come come about. And then finally, we'll look at how all this shows how we can experience God dwelling with us today. So let's look at David's desire first off. We see David's desire in verses 3 to 5. And again, he wanted to have the privilege of building a temple for God, a dwelling place for God. After he had ascended to the throne and had gotten stability in Israel, he became convicted because he felt like, here I am in this wonderful palace while God is, if you will, living in a tent. And basically that was the uh, uh, the tent of meeting that uh, they had built hundreds of years before during the wilderness wanderings. They were still using that to worship. so God, he, he, David rather wanted to build this uh, temple for God. It's interesting to me, though, to think of how you know, David is basically saying that he can't even go to bed until he finds a dwelling place for God, when sadly all too many won't get out of bed to go where we know God already dwells, and that is on Sunday mornings where he dwells with his people, like we're doing right here. His people gathered in worship. 
Now, obviously, y'all are all here today, so you got out of bed. Good for you. But still, but still, have you ever bitten into a piece of stale bread? That is no fun, let me just tell you. I've, we've come to love sourdough bread in the Falls home, and uh, I had made myself a sandwich out of some uh, sourdough bread the other day, a couple weeks back, and it was a brand new loaf of bread, made the sandwich and everything, bit into it, and when I bit into it, though, it was stale. Ugh! It was hard, dry, as tasteless as could be. I didn't even swallow the bite I had taken, put the thing in the trash. Nothing good about stale. Could it be that that would describe your relationship with God right now? Hard, dry, tasteless. You go to read the Bible or you go to pray and it just doesn't do anything for you. Maybe even you come to worship and it just seems stale to you for some reason. Well, I hope this psalm can help us catch a little bit of David's desire for God's dwelling, his desire and longing for God. We see it in many of his psalms. Uh, one of the psalms he wrote was uh, an earlier psalm in this series uh, from 122 verse 1. David wrote this and said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In Psalm 63, the first two verses, he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Well, that was David's longing, and uh, the people of God you see in verses 6 to 10 get caught up in it too. And uh, they basically say, yes, let's go. Let's go to the house of the Lord and worship him at his footstool. And that was uh, certainly meant to be uh, Jerusalem. So that, in brief, is what David's desire was, and the people of God followed in his wake a desire for God and to be in his presence. Let's look now at God's desire, and we see that in verses 13 and 14, where he talks about how he has chosen Zion and desired it for his dwelling place. And he says, I will dwell uh, there, for I have desired it, in verse 13 and 14, he says. And when he says Zion, by the way, that's just another name for Jerusalem. Much like we call Charlotte the Queen City. That's another way we describe Charlotte. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, why do you think the Lord particularly desired this piece of real estate? Is it because it's so beautiful? Or maybe it had oil deposits underneath it and God thought he could turn a profit or something. No, nothing silly like that. He simply desired it because that would be the place where he would dwell with his people, the children of Israel. And he wanted to do that. His desire was to dwell with his people. Now, you know, many people would say that the uh, Bible is the record of humanity's search for God. Well, I think personally that really the Bible is probably more our fleeing from God <laughs> and instead God's pursuit of us. If you think about it, so many stories of the Bible reflect that God's pursuit of us, even though we're running away all the time. Just think about some of the stories in the scriptures, how after the fall, when Adam and Eve turned from God, God comes and takes away their pitiful fig leaves and gives them garments of skin and promises that someday a descendant of theirs would defeat the serpent, their enemy. Of how after the Tower of Babel fiasco, when we were rebelling against God there, the Lord raises up an entirely new nation through Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, and Sarah, promising that all the other nations will be blessed through this new nation that God is creating. And then how after God delivered that nation from slavery in Egypt, 
what do they do? They grumble and complain against God all the time, don't they? Not only in the wilderness wanderings, but even when they get into the promised land. Over and over, they're upset with God about things. Yet he patiently brings them judges. People, godly people like Deborah, Gideon, and Samson, and well, Samson wasn't all that godly. But anyway, uh, you, you get the point. God raises these folks up to deliver them from their oppressors. Even after they had grumbled and complained and so much. And then finally he raises up David, who has a heart after God's own heart, and is the guy that's featured here in our psalm today, to prepare for the building of the temple in Zion. All of which, to me at least, I don't know about you, but begs the question, why? Why does God keep pursuing us? Why does he keep coming after us when it seems like all we do is run from him? Well, as God told Israel, look it up, Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. He says he, he doesn't love us because we're more numerous than any other people, or more righteous than any other people, or smarter, or anything else. It's just because he loves us. Simply because he chooses to love us. So he desires to dwell with us. So that in sum is uh, David's desire, again, for a dwelling place for God, God's desire to dwell with his people. Now let's go to God's promise, which as I said, really helps both of those desires to come about. Now God had David prepare the temple because he ended up not taking David up on his offer. It was a God-honoring offer that David made wanting to do that, but God said, no, I'm going to have your son Solomon build it instead. No, I'm going to make you a promise, David. I'm going to make you a promise that a descendant of yours will be on the throne of Israel forever. Now think about that. How many governments do you know of that have lasted forever? Not too many. <laughs> In fact, zero. <laughs> Nothing. So this is an amazing promise that God makes. But did you notice the if? If we look at verses 11 and 12, the Lord says, the Lord swore a, a, to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back, one of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on the throne. That's a big if, sadly. Now, it didn't mean they had to be perfect, but God did expect them to be followers of him. And there were many of descendants of David that were Good godly guys who followed him. Uh, think of Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah. Uh, really some amazing guys in that respect. Uh, but honestly, there were many more who rejected God, who rebelled from him, who turned away from him, and followed Baal, followed Asherah, and really just their own selfish de desires. And they eventually led the whole nation into idolatry as well, to the point where God exiles the whole nation into Babylon and puts an end to the Davidic kings. Some of the saddest stuff in the Bible. So what of God's promise? Well, even though David's descendants violated the if, they did not keep covenant with God, they did not continue to follow God, God pursued anyway. Again, we see this because he sent one day, centuries later, an angel to a young woman in the city of Nazareth. And this is what he said to her. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob 
forever. His, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So it's through Jesus that God really uh, fulfills the, the desires that we'd seen earlier, the desire David had for us as his people to be able to dwell with him, to experience God. And God's desire to dwell with us, it all comes about through the man who is more than just a man, Jesus the Christ, son of God, notice, son of the most high, and yet son of David, who would reign on the throne forever. And when he came, oh, how people responded to him, even before he was born. While still in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist leaped for joy when Mary, herself pregnant with Jesus, showed up. When Jesus crossed the Sea of, the, of Galilee into the country of the Gerasenes, he met a man possessed by demons who tormented this guy and had him living in among tombs. But Jesus healed him. Now that scared the people of that country to death when they saw that happen. <laughs> but the man himself in love and gratitude, begged Jesus to let him stay with him. After Jesus' crucifixion, remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking along and a man joins them that they didn't know. Yet when they stopped and broke bread together, they recognized that that was Jesus who had been with them all along. Now he disappeared, but then they could only exclaim, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road? People just responded to Jesus that way. Now, for sure, <laughs> the reactions to Jesus Christ uh, during his lifetime on earth ran the gamut. There were people who uh, responded with worshipful adoration and others who responded with murderous hatred, but no one found him stale or boring. Listen to Dorothy Sayers, uh, a novelist and friend of C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien and those guys, what she had to say about Jesus during his life. The people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet. But those who knew him objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. True, he was tender to the unfortunate, patient with honest inquirers, and humble before heaven. But he insulted respectable clergymen by calling them hypocrites. He called King Herod a fox. He went to parties in disreputable company and was looked upon as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. That means he drank wine. A friend of publicans and sinners. He assaulted indignant tradesmen and threw them and their belongings out of the temple. He cured diseases by any means that came handy with a shocking casualness in the matter of other people's pigs and property. He showed no proper deference for wealth or social position. If he was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime, and if he was God, there can be nothing dull about God either. <laughs> Wow, that's uh, quite a portrait of our Lord and who he is, isn't it? And of course, he came not only to dwell with us while he was on earth, but to make it so that all who desire might dwell with him forever. Because, of course, he came to give his life as a ransom for many, so that all who trust in him and his sacrifice on the cross in our place for our sins might be reconciled to God. 
And again, astounding as it is, this the Lord did not only so that we could dwell with him, so that we could get to go to heaven someday and experience him now too, and we'll get to that, but so that he could dwell with us. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to the Father on behalf of all who would ever put their faith in him. John 17, 24. Look up that whole chapter. It's awesome. But one of the things he prayed was, Father, I desire... Just think about Jesus desiring something. I desire that they also, us, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is speaking of that new Jerusalem to come that we've uh, read about already that John saw coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband, where it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21. So, what about us? What does that say for those of us sitting here today as we've looked at God's desire, David's desire, and Christians' desires, the promise that God made and how it's fulfilled in Christ? What about us? Where are you this morning with this Jesus? Maybe he's calling you to finally become reconciled to him, and you've never done that. Maybe you're just now checking out Christianity, or maybe God's been tugging at your heartstrings for a long time. I would say to you, and more importantly, God would say to you, come. Some of the last words of the Bible are, come. Come, let the one who is thirsty come. Reconcile with the Lord. Simply acknowledge to him that you've not lived your life to his glory like you should, but if strayed away, then simply go to him and ask for the forgiveness offered through his sacrifice on the cross for sin on the, sin on the cross. And what about the rest of us, obviously most of us here this morning, I would say, who have already taken that step? What does it mean for us, this whole idea of God's dwelling place? So much is different now than when the songs of ascent were being sung on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, we don't go to Jerusalem for feasts anymore. Uh, there's no temple. There's no way to keep the feast. Uh, no descendant of David reigning there as king. Jesus is no longer on the earth, and the new Jerusalem hasn't come down out of heaven yet. <laughs> so where does that leave us? Basically, the question is, where does God dwell today? Obviously, God's present everywhere, but is there a sense where he dwells in a special way with his people as he did with the temple in the past? Well, the answer might surprise you. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, dwells within you? It's really interesting, in the uh, days of the early church, uh, the, during the Roman Empire times, Christians were accused of being atheists. Can you guess why? They didn't have any temples. They knew that they were the temple, that God dwelt in them, so they had no temple. They were accused of being atheists. So this has all kinds of meaning for us, to the thought that God dwells in us. We are God's special dwelling place. Uh, so many implications to this, the Holy Spirit's dwelling in us, but we're going to look at uh, just two, one that has uh, individual meaning and one that has uh, corporate meaning for us. First, the uh, individual meaning. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit being within us as having rivers of living water within us. 
living water. I've never seen living water. Have you ever seen? I'm not, I don't know what that would be like, but it sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Living water. And that's what's flowing within us. Basically, that's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he wants, he dwells within us and he wants to breathe new life into every aspect of our life, every area of our life. The question is, how much room are you, how much room am I making for God? You know, in, our, um, in the Falls home uh, some years ago, uh, our, our family situation was such that uh, uh, my wife and I lived there. My mom uh, also lived there. She had most of the uh, bottom half of the house. We live in a uh, split level house. And then uh, again, my wife and I and our kids were kind of mostly upstairs. But a, a point came where uh, we had one of our daughters move downstairs into one of the uh, two bedrooms there. My mom had one and the daughter was going to have the other. And, uh, and then, you know, my mom seemed to go along with that without too much problem. And they were going to share the bathroom now. <laughs> um, well, we found out how much my mom really meant that when she uh, made room for the, her granddaughter, mind you, that's now going to be partly living with her by in the bathroom, giving her a half of a shelf to put all that she had, like her towels and washcloths and toothpaste and toothbrush and conditioner and shampoo and, you know, everything else, your hair dryer, all that. Half of a shelf, grudgingly making room for someone to dwell with you. <laughs> That's what's going on. So the question is for each of us, are you giving God half a shelf? Are you giving God half a shelf? Too often God gets a bad rap, I think. We think he wants to cramp our style, to crush our identities. But in fact, he came to give us the life that is truly life. And we somehow just don't believe that. I think C.S. Lewis, I am going to quote him today, uh, illustrates our situation well in a book he wrote called The Great Divorce. Tells us about a man who found himself on the shores of heaven. I'm not going to explain how he got there, but God sends him an angel to talk to him. Now the man's there, but he's a bit embarrassed because he has this little red lizard on his shoulder. And he knew it's not the kind of thing you bring to heaven. And the lizard's tail was twitching and it was whispering stuff in its ear. Now the angel came up to the man and asked if he would like the lizard uh, to be quiet, for him to make the lizard be quiet. Of course, the man said. And the angel said, okay, I will kill it. <laughs> you said nothing so drastic as that. <laughs> The man says, and the angel says, it's the only way to do it. Well, let me think on it, the man says. And so it went back and forth. Uh, the man wanting the lizard to be gone, but not really sure he could do without it. And the angel sticking to the truth, there's only one way to deal with it, and that is to kill it. Finally, in desperation, the man gave in. The angel gripped the lizard, threw it, broken back onto the ground. But the thing is, rather than seeming to be dead, it starts to writhe and wriggle. And before, in a few moments, it has transformed into this great stallion. Lewis describes it as being silvery white with a golden mane and a golden tail. The stallion and the man then look to each other and hug each other. And the man jumps upon the stallion, and this is how Lewis continues the story. They were off before I knew well what was happening. There was riding, if you like. like a sh sh they were already only a shooting star far off on the green plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountain, then still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment, till near the brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished bright themselves into the rose brightness of that early morning. 
See, that's what God wants to do with the lizards in our lives, is to turn them into these wonderful stallions that we ride off into the morning. So the question is, for you and for me, what are the lizards in our lives? What are the lizards in our lives? And we can go to the Lord about this and ask him, Jesus, where am I still allowing self or things to crowd you out? Where am I experiencing ongoing fear or resentment, bitterness, hopelessness, shame, guilt, hate, any area of persistent sin? Transform my pride, my zeal for self into zeal for you. Transform my gossiping tongue into a mouth of praise to you and encouragement to others. Heal my discouragement, my sorrows. Turn them into a deep well of hope in you. Wherever that might be for you, that you know you're giving God half a shelf. Let him transform it. Let him transform that. Go to him, as I've said, enlist the help of a godly friend, pastor or counselor. Uh, Apply pertinent scripture to whatever area that might be and consistently continue what you're doing this morning, worshiping God in his presence with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Bottom line, open your heart wide to God that he might give you the life that is truly life. So that's the uh, individual meaning, as I said, and now for the corporate meaning, and just very briefly here. But there's something else in this passage, almost so obvious we might miss it, but that is experiencing the presence of God is just as much a team sport as it ever was in the past, and especially in worship, which is kind of the context of this passage here, David wanting to build that temple for the people of God to come and gather. And experience, we, we can't experience God on our own in a way that we can gathered with God's people like we are here today. Yet, in our world, uh, the Wall Street Journal, for instance, had a recent article about how after the pandemic, middle-aged folks, uh, glad I'm not one of those, I'm old now. Anyway, middle-aged folks aren't going back to church after the pandemic, supposedly. One man is quoted as saying, when you got faith, you got faith. I just don't think going every Sunday makes you who you are. Wow. Well, sadly, his statement is both incorrect and beside the point. As we read at the beginning of the uh, service, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. You see, it's the Holy Spirit dwells in us individually, but in a whole different way when we come together, when we are together, we, we are the church. And that particularly makes uh, a, a factor in worship. Now, many people work hard to make this worship service point you to the Lord. And as I hope we've seen a bit this morning, there's nothing stale about Him. So if your experience in worship is stale, here's something you can do about it. Now, if you think about it, If you're going to bake a cake, you've got to have the ingredients ahead of time to do it, right? (laughs) Uh, If you're going to take an exam in school, you're probably not going to ace it unless you've studied ahead of time. And finally, if you're going to the beach, it won't be near as much fun if you haven't packed your swimsuit, sunglasses, and sunscreen. And basically the same thing is true about worship. It's the same with worship. At times in scriptures, we see God telling his people to sanctify themselves. And, you know, sanctification or holy being holy simply means set apart for God. And we can sort of set ourselves apart to God in preparation for worship. 
And there, some of the practical things we can do there is simply to, to pray for the service, to pray for the folks that are leading it, the, the pastors and all that, to read the scripture ahead of time. There's no, no doubt next week it's 133. So you can read that between now and then. Uh, you can ask God to help you catch the meaning of the lyrics of songs. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can just be mouthing the words and then I realize, what did I just sing? <laughs> ask God to help you to really meditate on the words and then commit to opening your heart wide to whatever God has for you in the service. Bottom line, it all comes down to desire. That's what this psalm is about, a desire for God and God's desire to dwell with us. Centuries ago, though, one of the most godly people I've ever read about, a guy named Anselm, admitted that he struggled with God, desiring God, and he was a godly man. <laughs> but he knew that he at least desired to desire. And that's a starting point. So let's all ask God now to waken our hearts that we might desire him as he deserves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for your word. How we thank you. It, it, it blows our minds to think about how you desire to dwell with us. Lord, I know what a sinner I am and how I fail in so many ways. And yet you still love me. It's not based on my performance or anything else but simply because you choose to love us and want to be with us. Lord, help us to have eyes and hearts open wide to who you are and what you are like, that we might be fulfilled in you and honor you in all that we do, because we know following you is both to your glory and our good, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.